we need to communicate to healthcare, to healthcare providers, our credentials. Mm -hmm. They don't understand what our credentialing means. So we need to translate and interpret it for them and, and help them understand our knowledge, our expertise, the type of populations that we work with. When I did research with healthcare providers, I really understood that, of course, they want to refer their patients to fitness professionals that they trust. And they don't have the time to go out and, and do the research and, and understand who they should trust. So we need to make it easier for them by educating, raising awareness, communicating directly with them, communicating with them through their patients, mm -hmm. sending patients to them, explaining, I worked with this fitness professional, I did this type of program, I had these type of results, and that will help to build credibility. You just heard a commentary from Dr. Amy Bantham, a passionate advocate for fitness as healthcare. We have a long road to get to the point where we are an integral part of that system, but it's totally possible, and Dr. Bantham is one of the people leading the way for this. In this episode, we discuss fitness as healthcare and the importance of it and how we can just stop talking about being part of the system and how we can actually have action to be part of it. Before we jump into the episode, listen to a little more of Dr. Bantham in discussing collaboration how we can be part of the collaboration with healthcare, and then we're going to jump into the episode. We need to collaborate with other members of the healthcare team, with healthcare providers, with medical assistants, with health coaches, with registered dietitians, with physical therapists, with occupational therapists, the whole care team and we need to be embedded in that care team so collaboration is absolutely critical this is mike stack host of the wellness paradox podcast this is dr darian parker host of dr d's social network and this is the, the front, front line, line of, of fitness, fitness. Let's talk a little bit about fitness as healthcare and particularly like fitness clubs as part of the American public health infrastructure. When you think about that, what thoughts come to mind when you think about fitness clubs as part of the healthcare infrastructure? Yeah, I think it's such an interesting statement because I think internally to the health and fitness club industry, we view ourselves as critical components of the public health infrastructure. I think external to our community, and we definitely saw this during the pandemic, uh, that was not the view of the vast majority of lawmakers, public health officials, uh, medical community, and then also the, the public in general. So I think we see it internally as a, a truism. I think externally, uh, for lots of reasons I'm sure we'll discuss, it's yeah. not necessarily viewed that same way. Yeah. And it's kind of like the discussion about, you know, fitness professionals as healthcare providers. Um, as you know, being in the business for a while, 
we kind of have a gimmicky reputation on some level. Mm -hmm. And for the, the consumer doesn't always understand our role, but they understand kind of the traditional role of a nurse, a doctor, um, even a massage therapist, mm -hmm. uh, different things, and how maybe some a person navigates their way through the education and sits for a board, and then you have fitness professionals. <laughs> a very different standardization for getting into the business, you know. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. And throughout the course of this series, we're going to talk about that. But you know, I think you know this really there's there's multiple elements to this. And I, I think the first element to some degree is the element that we as an industry have created for ourselves, which is, you know, we have been somewhat short-sighted in the way we market and communicate our services. Uh, we've been highly focused on, you know, the short-term objectives of improving body composition and things of that nature. Our messaging and our imagery is not very inclusive. In fact, it's pretty exclusive. You tend to see a lot of similarly looking, very fit people. So we have created this narrative around what we are as an industry. And that was created in the you know, mid 80s, early 90s. And now as we've evolved as an industry, we've started to grow up, we've realized that we are indeed more than this. And, and we are actually a critical part of healthcare for lots of reasons we're going to unpack. And now we're at this very challenging point where we need to change that image and change that narrative in amongst the time where our industry on some level has been under some existential threat because of COVID. So it's been a, this is a very challenging point that we're at, but I think it's a great inflection point for our industry to actually start making some changes. I think you're totally right. And I think it's good, especially for the listener, just kind of understand, I'm very big into this kind of like the historical context is how we got here. So we talked about the eighties and all that stuff. And I've done a lot with history of fitness. What was it about kind of the advent of our business that created this kind of introduction into the larger society of fitness and wellness to people? Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting when you look back pretty far historically, you've got a, a couple different things going on, but the broader commercial fitness industry, really the genesis of that is the bodybuilding culture of the 70s. Think, you know, Venice, think Arnold, Franco Colombo, the movie yeah. Pumping Iron. <laughs> Pumping yeah, Iron. That, that's, that's, yeah, that's, it's a lot of really where we came from. Also at the same time, and even earlier than that, I mean, you did have Dr. Kenneth Cooper at the Cooper Clinic in Texas. Uh, doing a lot of his seminal research on the importance of aerobics and building out all of those programs. But even so, when he was doing that at the time, they tried to revoke his medical license. And, you know, they told him that he was actually going to kill more people than he helped by putting them on a treadmill. So you, you kind of have this interesting juxtaposition at that time where you have the bodybuilding culture, and then you have this, this maverick physician on some level who turned out to be absolutely right in every sense of the word. Uh, so that's really where we start from, uh, at least on the on the commercial side, it is yeah. this bodybuilding culture. So there's always been this overemphasis from our roots on the way we look and our outward appearance. And that's also very prevalent in American society. And I think, you know, that has been the narrative that we we've carried into the new century. And that's what put us in this precarious position with the, the vast majority of the American public that doesn't use our clubs. Yeah. And it's interesting. And also as, as that kind of moved from this eighties, Venice beach, pumping iron, you get into this kind of the nineties, 
and you started getting to a big explosion into uh, VHS, DVD, you're getting the Billy Blanks, Tybo. I mean, you're getting, then you start moving into the P90X. It's almost this video, it's right, this technological advance and bringing fitness to the masses, but it's still, it, it, it was very aesthetic in nature. I mean, look who's in the videos, look at the outcomes. It's all really fit people for that. Yeah. And then also at a time where personal training started rising and the rise of third-party accreditations, things of that nature. So it's like, we're really in our infancy, if you really think about it. I mean, the 80s yeah. is no, that's such a speck of time. It's like, just happened, if you really think about it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's really interesting, as you say that, is you think of, you know, the, the Billy Blanks and the P90X and, and those type of workouts, the HIT type of training, yeah. the boot camp style of training. It, it very much appealed to a more physically fit, demographic, the people who were already exercising, just even think of the terminology, like boot camp has such a (laughs) negative connotation to it broadly, yet it it was marketed and promoted for so long. CrossFit, another example, great workout, uh, intense workout, but not for the masses. It's funny though, when you do go back, there's, there is one outlier in the group exercise world in the eighties and early nineties. And he doesn't get talked about as much, but it's Richard Simmons. Yes. And, you know, the sweating with the oldies <laughs> yeah. and, you know, he, he wasn't Billy Blanks. And, you know, for those, for those people that are listening, that are too young to remember who you know, Richard Simmons is, just go look him up online and look at yeah. his videos. He was, I mean, he was a fit individual, but he wasn't ripped. He wasn't Jack. The people that he had in his videos, uh, they weren't in rip jack i mean in some cases those individuals were were decently overweight so i think richard simmons did get it on some level because he he made that large swath of the population that doesn't engage with us he made them feel comfortable and i think what we're starting to realize as an industry if we do want to truly become part of healthcare, we need to make people feel as comfortable and safe as they do in healthcare environments. And on some level as comfortable and safe as, as Richard Simmons made people back in the eighties when they were sweating to the oldies. Such a good point. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with, I believe our contributor will be on this Dr. Amy Bantham, you know, as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And which she is doing a lot of research in the healthcare and fitness and talking about gyms of the future being more uh, body type sensitive and yes. employees being more representing all types of different bodies, being more inclusive versus exclusive for that. And I think Richard Simmons on some level understood that. I've watched those videos too, <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. And it's more indicative of the general population than any of those other videos, which really just cater to the 20% on down. Yes. And in many ways, all that stuff continues to do that. It does, without a doubt. And just look at marketing and messaging and hiring practices. People want to go where they feel like they fit in, where people look like them, have similar concerns to them, sound like them. Yet, you know, as an industry, it's so interesting because I talk to my marketing team about this a lot for for my company. I ask people to go to find imagery to use in our ads, you know, go to Getty images, go to any stock images. You can't find 
any diversity in those ads. And to the point where we've just made the decision, the conscious decision to just shoot real photos of our real clients, of our real staff, because you know, that's what's most representative. And it's very interesting. My commercial fitness company, we, we are getting into that other 80%. And one of the things they will tell us is how nice it is when they look on our website, that they actually see people that look like them. And when they walk through the door, they see people that work like them. One of my best trainers who has worked for me for 11 years now, keeping in mind, I've had my company for 14 years. So yeah. this guy's been with me almost from the start. Uh, he is by all objective BMI measures, he's overweight and he's not someone that's going to have a shirt off in a, in a P90X video, but he has this superpower of making everyone feel so comfortable yeah. when they come into contact with him. And his, his body composition is not his business card. Right. And I think that's I think that's such a critical thing for our profession to start to get away from is that you know, just because you look great doesn't mean that's a net positive for trying to help the broader population. Not to say that means we need to get overweight and right. all gain a bunch of weight as fitness professionals. I'm saying there needs to be an intentionality behind how we're messaging and the images we're putting out there and the people we're putting in our clubs. Yeah, most definitely. I think for so long, it has been the certain type of physique, certain look, the aesthetic, and say, saying this is what clients want, us projecting that this is what clients want. When in reality, we're just missing out on a, a tremendous amount of people who actually don't want that. But we're, we're looking at it from a very aesthetic point of view. Yeah, because that's how we look at it. That's how we like, look like, at it. Like, yeah. like, I, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I got into this. I was I was an overweight kid. Like mm -hmm. I was I was a hundred pounds more in my senior year mm -hmm. of high school than I am right now. I was picked on for being overweight, which I'm sure you know a lot of people will resonate with that. And all I wanted to do was get leaner, get ripped. And so when I got into this as a you know college freshman at University of Michigan, I was like, I just want to figure out how to learn this stuff so I can look better for myself. So yeah. I had yeah. this. I had this frame of reference and this perspective that I brought to this out of some painful events early in my life. And my assumption for the first part of my career was that everyone wanted the same thing that I wanted. When in reality, now reflecting back and being a little bit more mature, being in this for you know some 23 years now, I realized that a lot of those people, they didn't want a six pack. They didn't want yeah. you know perfect glutes. They just wanted to be able to play with their kids and they wanted to be able to clean the house and they wanted to not have pain anymore. And so it's, we as an industry have failed to take the perspective of the people who we need to serve the most, broadly speaking, yes. and that's been to our detriment. And I think that's starting to shift. I mean, even the fact that we're having this conversation right <laughs> now, I don't know if this conversation's happening 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I suspect it's not. I'm going to, I tell you what, I mean, in the last 10 years, I know I've never had this conversation with almost anybody in our business. And I, and I would say in that time frame, I would have never convinced anybody in my business <laughs> that that was a good thing. Yeah. They would have said, oh, Darren, you're wrong. You got to be in great condition. And this particular look to be, you need to basically show this is what you could be in type of thing. But I, I see in the last year, particularly, this is a growing conversation. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this with you, Michael, because I saw how progressive you are and your ideas about this. And listen, I, I, I've never been overweight in my life. Full disclosure, I've always been, I was a skinny kid and I got really fit. So I, I can't say that I understand that journey, but I am really trying to 
And I want to spend the time understanding that not everyone's going to look like me and everyone should look, they should not look like me. It should look like whatever version that you feel better about yourself, whatever body type is more native to you, whatever that is. I want to, I am not uh, someone who can represent that transformation. I understand that, but I also want to seek to understand and have empathy and understand what is, what has your journey been like? And how can we have better representation in this business for people who have had different experiences with their body, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it does. It starts with that awareness. It starts with that empathy. It starts with having the conversation. And look, if you want change, if you want a paradigm shift in any business or industry, you, you got to follow the money on some level to catalyze that. And the reality is, and we'll get into this throughout the course of our yeah. conversations, there's a very real economic and business opportunity here because basically what we're talking about, we've been serving the same 20% of people for the last 40 or so years. And when a new health club opens up down the street, people just go from one to the other, another one opens up. We're just, it's the same market. We're just dividing up amongst us. Well, what if we start to get break into the other 80%? we don't have to get the entire 80% and we're not going right, to, no. even if you get the next 10, 15, 20%, you're, you're doubling the market share. What, it, what a profound difference that could make, not just on our businesses, but also on the, on the state of public health in this country, because as we're well aware, you know, physical health is poor. Sadly, mental health may even be poorer right now. And we know, you know that fitness and movement and physical activity and healthy lifestyle is the antidote to that. But it's never going to happen if we are just continuing to get the fit fitter. Exactly. And this brings me up to, I think, kind of in our historical lesson on some level, the pandemic and mm -hmm. shift related to fitness, health and wellness and the larger public health conversation, essential businesses. Let's talk a little bit about that. And from your point of view, what have you seen kind of the evolution that's happened in our business during that time period or this time period. Yeah, it's a very interesting, you know, confluence of events. You've got, you know, first and foremost, the shutdown of all of the health clubs nationally. And that was a punch to the gut. When we were facing the, the public health crisis of our time, you know, maybe several generations, you know, we as an industry that prided ourselves on being about health we're told that we weren't essential to health. So that was a gut punch. And then we were all shut down for a very long time. Some of us longer than others. I was shut down here for six months in Michigan. Other people, it wasn't as long. Nevertheless, we were shut down. And then when we were reopened, we were reopened and we were categorized with restaurants and bars and casinos. If the first closure was the gut punch, the reopening was the punch square to the jaw. Mm. And, and that was the never again moment, I think, for our industry. That yeah. was the moment where industry realized we have to unify. And that is the, the byproduct of COVID that will be so positive for our industry amongst so much devastation is that we are now unified and we are speaking with one voice. Instead of us looking at the, the health club down the road as the competitor, we now realize that our competitor is, you know, the couch and the fast food <laughs> restaurant and all these other unhealthy lifestyle choices. So on, on one hand, you've got this resolve in the industry to actually never allow this to happen again. So that, that coexists with this very unique health crisis that occurred 
where for the first time in modern history, you had chronic conditions that could lead to acute mortality. Meaning if you had diabetes before COVID or you were obese before COVID, that probably was going to result in deleterious health consequences years and years and years from now. If you were obese or diabetic during COVID, your increased risk of mortality skyrocketed. So now all of a sudden, the consciousness of not just the public, but also the public health officials, the, the medical community, even the lawmakers, they said, holy cow, we have a bunch of people who are incredibly diseased and comorbid, and they're at risk of a very severe medical event now. And so I think it's that combination of things that makes this timing so right. And I found myself quoting Winston Churchill a lot during this period of time with regard to our industry. Like Winston Churchill said, don't waste a good crisis. You know, right. we, we have this great crisis right now. And the good news is, is I don't see us wasting it. Uh, from URSA to ACSM to ACE to the, all the groups in the industry, uh, the state alliances and all the things that are going on, we all, those of us that are left, those of us that are left yeah. standing after all this mayhem, you know, we see this as the inflection point and we're starting to do something about it now. I've seen it big time with all the people I talk to and committees I'm a part of that there is a unification that uh, frankly, I wasn't sure was going to happen. Honestly, I was not very positive about it or optimistic, yeah. but I, I think crisis does that. It's, it's often terrible but there's often something that grows from it if you allow it to for that. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And I think, you know, a lot, a lot of ego in our industry yeah. as many, uh, probably too much testosterone in some, <laughs> in some cases more than others. And I think that, you know, that, that led to some barriers, but before COVID our, our common enemy was kind of each other uh, wrongfully. So, but that was the case. Now, after COVID, our, our common enemy is the fact that you know, we're not viewed as an essential part of the healthcare delivery system. Our common enemy are these chronic diseases that we're trying to fight. And I think it was just a matter of, of shifting who that adversary was away from each other towards these external ad adversaries. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're unified and, and it's making a difference. It's definitely making a difference. And it, I think it's shifting in a sense now which really kind of wraps into our, how does fitness become health, part of the healthcare system? What is our evolution that starts putting us in as a major player in healthcare? What are you seeing in that? Yeah, I think first we have to understand healthcare to a degree mm -hmm. as an industry. And that means everyone, not just the people who sit in the, the C-suite of you know, yeah, the big yeah. box commercial change, but that means even you know, trainers and other fitness professionals. First off, it's just about understanding the healthcare landscape, and we'll dive more into this yeah. as we go on to talk, but healthcare is at an unsustainable economic point right now. I will quote my really good friend, uh, Doug Ribley of the Medical Fitness Association, formerly of the Cleveland Clinic. In healthcare, you have this unsustainable cost equation. You have inpatient volumes are going down. You have costs going up. You have reimbursements going down. Hospital systems and healthcare providers realize they have to be in the service of prevention. So understanding that and building trust as an industry and as industry professionals with the healthcare community has to be our, our first and foremost objective. But you know, how do you build trust? Well, it takes time, it, it takes relationship building, it takes 
you know, being able to speak a common language. So in a lot of ways, our industry has to evolve by, you know, first changing its mindset. Like we have to change our mindset. We have to change our skill set, And then we have to change our messaging and our imagery and really be able to forge these relationships, not with the public per se, but to, to form it with the, the public health officials, the healthcare executives, the medical professionals, and the lawmakers, as those are all of our gateways to you know, being a part of healthcare. So essentially, we need to get out of our silo that we've, yes. been, that we've been screaming in as an echo chamber, and we need to start to build that trust bridge to these other elements of healthcare delivery in this country. We need to be on that same playing field. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of uh, comparable to the silos that I think we're experiencing in many other aspects of life right now. And fitness has been its own silo. And we're going to get into this um, in our further discussions. And part of that is a training and credentialing discussion. You know, if, uh, the, if the healthcare, the current state of healthcare system, which is unsustainable, but if that system recognizes us as being not a reputable system mm -hmm. to become part of it, that's a major issue as well. So there's a lot of self-work that has to be done in our industry. And there's many people I've talked to is like, we need to admit our faults yes. as an industry. Like we need to say, hey, listen, we haven't been great. Yes. We need to like admit that, admit that we're, we've not been that great. And here's how we're going to get better with that. Yeah, contrition is the first part. And I think yeah. on a lot of levels, we are doing that. But, you know, you said it, it trust is such a, it's such a loaded word. And yeah. you know, part of it comes with that relationship building, but also part of it comes with just really stepping up to the plate and realizing that, you know, if we really feel like we are healthcare providers, everything that we do has to be consistent with healthcare providers, the way we, the way we talk the way we carry ourselves, the way we dress. I mean, we can't be going to the gym <laughs> with cut off shorts anymore, and like a cut off shirt. You, yeah. you wouldn't see your physical therapist doing that. No. And then also what our, what our academic training and credentialing system looks like. And, and right now it's, and we'll talk about this, it's so fragmented and it's so difficult for the consumer to understand. You and I both know the difference between ACSM and- right pick your weekend certification, you pay $15 to go get, but the consumer doesn't know that difference. So it, it, you said it earlier, um, we're a young industry and yeah. it, it's time for us to grow up and mature, you know, to get out of this difficult teenage stage that we're in right now and actually yeah. become, you know, a young professional industry that is able to be on that healthcare continuum. And I've said this many times, you go to a party, and you tell somebody you're a physical therapist and they say, oh man, that's great that you help so many people. You tell somebody that you're a personal trainer and their response is, oh, that's cute. And you know, <laughs> we, we, need, we need to get away from that stigma, again, that, we've, that is partially self-inflicted. And there's, there is a path and, and we're gonna talk about that path yes. a little bit in the series with the help of some other really, really bright minds in our field. But it, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is indeed the definition of insanity. We've done that for 40 plus years in this industry. It's time to make a change. Yeah. And I, I think this is definitely a great segue into our next episode, but I wanted to share a quick story. I remember when I was in college, this was in the nineties, starting to feel like a long time ago, man, I'll tell you <laughs> what. 
And one of my roommates, who was like a marketing major, he asked me like what I was majoring in. And I said, oh, kinesiology. He goes, what do you learn how to do jumping jacks and stuff like that? I was like, you're going to, what are you good? Like, that was like the crux of like, man, this is what people think of us. And that has continued. And like you say, your story parallels. Oh, that's cute. What are you going to become a real estate agent later on or something? You're just doing this to pass time kind of thing. It is, it has been, our profession has almost been a hobbyist profession mm-hmm. and you see somebody does it on the side. Uh, it's uh, you know, eh, you know, something to try. I like working out type of thing. And so I think in our, our episode about training and credentialing is really important to break down. How do we move from that mindset to where people see it as a very critical aspect to the public public's health and wellness for that. So you got it. You got it. It is it is the realization that we are the frontline of frontline healthcare providers in this country. And we have to conduct ourselves in every way, shape, or form, from our academic training to how we carry ourselves as professionals to how we communicate with other allied health professions as such. And if we can make that mindset shift and then follow through on the behaviors and skills that are necessary, we'll get there. But like any change, it's a challenge. Most definitely, for sure.